0: Welcome to the Bible Lab, my friends, the podcast where we explore major themes from every book of the Bible in order to see how each page points us to Jesus, who he is, and what he's done. I'm your host, Andy Wood. Thank you so much for joining us. Friends, we are at the end of our examination of the Gospel of Mark, as today we're going to look at the fifth and final theme, and that is Mark discovered hope and significance in the kingdom of God. Now, we've mentioned the Synoptic Gospels. The Synoptic Gospels, which means the Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the three Gospels that see together, Synoptic, that see from the same point of view the ministry of Jesus. In all three of the Synoptic Gospels, the kingdom of God is a major theme. And so when Mark talks about the kingdom of God, he emphasizes two aspects of what it means for the kingdom of God to be here. There's a future form, a form that we don't yet fully possess, but there's also a present form. Now, if if you listen to our first episode from the Gospel of Mark, you might recall that I said that it seems likely that Mark was writing to Gentile Christians suffering persecution. And whether or not Mark's original readers were suffering persecution, it is certain that a countless number of Mark's readers throughout the last 2,000 years have been facing persecution. And so what Mark says about the future coming of the kingdom in power gave those original readers and us today hope. It promises deliverance and vindication to God's people. God is going to return. Christ is going to remove and defeat evil once and for all. And those who have been cast down, those who have been trampled on by the earth, those who have been persecuted, oppressed, and even killed, they will be raised up in glory. So the future, the not yet part of the kingdom, gives us hope. But the present form of the kingdom, what we have already, provides significance. When the gospel began to work its way through the ancient Mediterranean world, we're talking about at first 120 followers of Jesus after his resurrection. On the first day of Pentecost, we read about a couple of thousand people coming to faith in Jesus, and that's obviously an amazing result. But understand, we're talking about a few thousand people out of the hundreds of millions of people alive on the earth. Throughout the most of the first century of the Christian movement, they were a small, insignificant minority and wherever you're listening today whether it's in finland or perhaps in thailand or perhaps in nigeria you might also feel a just you're a tiny insignificant little band a little sect maybe meeting underground but maybe meeting in open because nobody really cares you might feel like nothing you're doing matters but it does matter you are a part of god driving darkness and evil out of the world what you do matters It shows the kingdom of God, shows the followers of Jesus, how you can participate in what God is doing right now. And so when Mark talks about the kingdom, there's these two sort of paradoxical ways he explains it. Remember, a paradox is two things that seems like they couldn't be true at the same time, but are. So for example, Mark says that the kingdom of God is a future and yet visible realm. So Mark talks about the kingdom of God in the terms of it being a not yet reality, and yet he says you can see it. Wherever we see God's rule recognized and unquestioned, wherever we see people bowing the knee before Jesus, we see the kingdom of God. When we see people entering into the kingdom of God through faith and repentance, we see the kingdom of God. Mark says the kingdom of God is imminent. It could happen at any moment that Christ could come back. And so the appropriate response to Jesus's message about the kingdom is repentance and faith. Mark 1, 14 and 15, the first words of Jesus in the gospel of Mark. It says, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So the appropriate response to the nearness of the kingdom, the fact that the kingdom is right here at the door, is to repent. Now, what is it? what does it mean to repent? To repent of your sins is to acknowledge that you have sinned. It is to acknowledge that you have done something wrong and that something is a violation of the law of God. It's not only to acknowledge that you've done something wrong, but to express genuine sorrow over having done it. But there's one more step. To repent, biblically speaking, is to not only acknowledge that you've done something wrong, it is not only to express genuine grief over having done it, but it's also to resolve in the strength of God to not do it again. It's to turn away from that thing. That, friends, is biblical repentance. But what is faith? Well, faith has three components. First, there's a knowledge component. So you can't have faith in Jesus if you never heard of Jesus. So right now, there are 8 billion people on the planet, and 2 to 3 billion of those people have not yet heard the name of Jesus, and they can't have saving faith. The second component of biblical saving faith is agreement. So you think about an atheist who has maybe grown up in the church or grown up knowing about the church. They know who Jesus is. They've maybe even read some of the Bible, maybe the whole Bible before, and they think that Christianity isn't true. They have knowledge, but they don't agree with it, and therefore they don't have saving faith. The third element of saving faith, though, is trust. Friends, there are many people who have heard of Jesus, so they've got knowledge, They may even agree that what the Bible says about Jesus is true to some extent. Yes, he's the son of God. Yes, he was born of a virgin. Yes, he died on the cross. Yes, he rose again. But they're not trusting in Jesus. Right now, as I record this, I'm sitting in a chair and I'm trusting my entire weight to this chair. I just sat down in it and I'm trusting this chair and to an infinitely, eternally greater degree. That's what saving faith means. I don't really know a lot about this chair. I don't know where we got it. I don't know. I know it's black. I know it's a folding chair. That's about as much as I know. But what's important for me right now is that I'm resting in this chair. I'm trusting in this chair. And that's what saving faith is. Yes, you you must know who Jesus is. You must agree that what the Bible says about Jesus is true. But then, brothers and sisters, you got to sit down. you got to trust that Jesus has done enough in his perfect life his substitutionary death, and his victorious resurrection, he has done enough to make you right before God, and you don't have to add a thing. Repentance and faith. But there's one more part of an appropriate response to the message about the kingdom, and that is wholehearted love toward God and others. In Mark 12, 28-34, we read about a conversation that Jesus had with one of the scribes. It says, And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he, Jesus, answered them well, asked him, "'Which commandment is the most important of all?' Jesus answered, "'The most important is, "'Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. "'And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and "'with all your soul, and with all your might, "'and with all your strength. "'The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. "'There is no other commandment greater than these.' "'And the scribe said to him, "'You are right, teacher.' You have truly said that he is one and that there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So the kingdom of God, Mark says, is both a future but also a visible realm. But it's also a present yet hidden reality. Now, previously in the Old Testament, God hinted and prophesied about what the kingdom of God would be, but it was hidden. It was as if there was a shroud over it, a cloth, a covering, so that we could see that there would be a kingdom, but we didn't see all the details, how it would fit together, how it would happen. But with the coming of Christ, the death and resurrection of Christ, the coming of the Holy Spirit, the veil has been removed and we can now see the kingdom for what it is. Now, the kingdom of God is still hidden to those who refuse to follow Jesus, when I look into a room full of my brothers and sisters in Christ and see them worshiping, I see something eternally significant and beautiful and meaningful and powerful. When an atheist looks into a room full of Christians worshiping Jesus, they think, what a waste of time. Now, one more part about this present and hidden reality is that it's not an out, the kingdom of God is not an outward domain, but a spiritual reality. The kingdom of God is not a country. There is no United States of Christendom. The kingdom of God is not a political entity. It doesn't have a military arm. The kingdom of God is a spiritual reality. Now, the kingdom of God is one of those things that's so big, it's so abstract, it's so often hard to wrap our arms around, that God in his mercy in the Gospel of Mark gives us three parables to help us understand the kingdom of God. I'm going to tell you what these parables are saying about the kingdom of God, then I'm going to read them. So the first is the parable of the sower. And the parable of the sower tells us that the kingdom is going to spread as people receive the teaching of Jesus and then bear fruit in their lives. I'll read it to you, Mark 4, 1 through 9. Again, he began to teach them beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, since it had no root, and it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The second parable is the parable of the growing seed. And that is this, the kingdom will grow because of God's power. Mark 4, 26 through 29. And Jesus said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Simply put, to Jesus' audience, they didn't understand how a seed grew. They just knew you throw it on the ground, and it rains, and the sun shines, and wow, look at that. We get to eat, and we get to survive. And so Jesus is saying, just like that seed ultimately grows because of God's power, the kingdom will grow because of God's power. It's not about technique. It's not about strategies and plans. All those are all good, and praise God for good strategies and good techniques and good plans But ultimately, we're banking on God showing up. The third parable that tells us what the kingdom of God is like is the parable of the mustard seed. And that is, the kingdom will grow beyond all expectations. Mark 4, 30 through 32. And Jesus said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all seeds on earth. And when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Jesus is here speaking to the reality that when he dies and he comes back from the dead, he will have 120 followers. I don't know what impact you think 120 people could make, but Jesus says, just watch, because these 120 people filled with the Spirit of God are going to do something that's going to shake the earth. Now, another thing that Mark emphasizes that all the synoptic gospels emphasize when they teach about the kingdom of God is about the return of Jesus. Now, the return of Jesus is certain. He is absolutely going to come back in physical form to judge the living and the dead, to destroy evil. But we don't know exactly when. And in reality, we don't have to know and we're not going to know. We could really boil down all that Jesus says about his return in the Gospels to two commands one, be ready. I'm going to read to you a couple of passages from Mark 13. Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Be on your guard. Be on your guard. I've told you all things beforehand. When you read through the gospel of Matthew, Jesus says, stay awake, stay awake, stay awake, stay awake. And the point he's making is the same. Be ready. We don't know when Christ is coming back, but we do know that he is. And our job is not to figure out when. It's to be busy at our master's work. To be ready. The second command that Jesus gives us with regards to his return is be on guard against deception. It is good for us to groan, to cry out, to long to see Jesus face to face. But Jesus knows this deep desire to see Jesus and this just our human gullibility to listen to false teachers and and attach meaning to signs and symbols. Oh, this happened and this happens. That must mean Jesus is coming back next Tuesday Jesus knows that's going to leave us vulnerable to false teachers. And so followers of Jesus must always be ready to rebuke false teaching. Mark 13, 5 through 8, Jesus says, When Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and there will be famines. These are but the beginning of birth pains. Now, when Jesus teaches on the topic of his return, he refers to himself as the son of man. And he is doing this in reference to the messianic figure in Daniel 7. Now, no one ever calls Jesus son of man. He calls himself son of man. And if you go back, and I would encourage you to go and read Daniel 7, you're gonna see this stunning vision of the people of God being persecuted, you're going to see one coming before the throne of God and not bowing down before God, but be giving a throne next to God and reigning with God and ruling the nations beside God and be giving a kingdom that lasts forever. And this is obviously Daniel seeing Jesus. So when Jesus calls himself the son of man, that's who he's referring to. So Jesus will often use the title son of man when he's talking about his present authority on earth. He is saying to us, do not be fooled by the fact that I appear to be just a poor wandering carpenter from a no name town in a no name province, tucked away you know, in the Roman Roman Empire. No, I am God in the flesh. Jesus also uses his title Son of Man in sayings about his future coming and power. Just like that Son of Man figure is given authority to rule the nations forever, Jesus says, I will return in the clouds and I will reign and bring justice. But he also uses the title Son of Man in sayings about his death and resurrection because Jesus never separates his view of his Messiahship apart from his suffering and death. He will be enthroned through his crucifixion. His victory parade is when he walks out of the grave. So Christ has not yet come. And that leaves us with a job to do. And our present task is to proclaim the gospel to all nations, to make disciples of all nations. And the gospel faces a hostile world. And since we face a hostile world, we must depend on the Holy Spirit. We are not sufficient for these things. Because we face a hostile world, we're going to be asked to endure suffering and persecution but we do this because Jesus is worth it. Because the gospel faces a hostile world, we must stick close, not just close, but clinging to Jesus's pattern. And that is suffering and servanthood. There is no crown apart from the cross. And because the gospel faces a hostile world, we must maintain Jesus's message. We don't freestyle. We don't come with our up with our own spin. We preach the gospel of Jesus, which is faith and repentance in our crucified, risen, and coming again King. But our present task is one that is impossible apart from the Spirit, but is full of hope. Because despite opposition, the gospel is going to grow. The suffering servant is the King of kings, and he will receive the glory that is his due. So friends, when we come back together next time, Lord willing, we're going to begin an examination of the book of Romans. But for now, take up and read. God bless.